0: going to be looking at the first five verses of this passage I'm going to read, but I wanted to dip into next week's passage, so I included that, so we'll look at at some of these verses again next week, but we're in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him. And put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before them, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray together. Our great king in heaven, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. But our hearts need your instruction as well. That you would take the words of this text and you would take my words and you would apply these words into the hearts of those who are present here, the many different lives present here. You know our lives better than we know ourselves. And so search our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last couple months, we have been asking the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? We've been looking at the last chapters, the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and going passage by passage, and it turns out that every passage, in this closing narrative of Jesus' life, each passage gives us a different insight into the meaning of the cross. And we've seen all different meanings, you know, like, what is the answer to the problem of evil? That how can there be a good God and all this evil in the world? And the cross is a profound answer to that. Or, you know, what are the dynamics of forgiveness? How does forgiveness work? And you look at the cross and you realize, wow, there's deep insights into how forgiveness works with each other and with our relationship with God. And there's, so there's just layer upon layer of meaning to this central event of the Christian faith, Jesus' death on the cross. And this week, um, we are talking about what I think is one of the most personal aspects of Jesus' death on the cross, is probably the aspect that for some of you will hit closest to home. And it's the topic of the cross and shame. And, you know, in many modern presentations of the cross there's a lot of emphasis put on how gruesome crucifixion is so for example if you saw mel gibson's movie came out 10 or 15 years ago the passion of christ there's all kinds of details about you know blood and guts and flesh and everything you know jesus being ripped apart and the physical torture that jesus endured But, you know, when you come to the Bible, you find out the Bible's description of the cross is very different. There's almost no details about Jesus, the physical torture he went through. And actually, the verse in Matthew that's when Jesus is actually crucified is in verse 35. Look at what it says. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And when they had crucified him, It's a side comment. It's not even the main clause of the sentence. It's just a side comment. There's hardly any attention actually given to nails going into his hand or anything like that. And I think the reason for that is what Christians have said throughout history is that the worst part of Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the physical pain of it. It was the shame of it. The cross was a death, an act of shaming. And that Jesus was enduring Our shame on the cross. And that that was actually far darker, far worse than the physical pain. Actually, this text puts far more emphasis on the shame that Jesus endured as he went to the cross. There's all kinds of details about the shame, very little detail about the physical torture. Now, the Bible, I think, recognizes that there are two kinds of shame. You might call them legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. So, there is a certain legitimate kind of shame that we should all feel because we're sinners and we, we hurt one another and we disobey God. And we should feel a shame for our sin, that we you know disgusted at our own sin. And actually, if you were here several weeks ago, we talked about repentance. An important part of repentance is feeling sorrow for your sin. But I think that the Bible also recognizes that there is an illegitimate shame that we deal with as humans in a broken world shame and a disgust with ourselves that we shouldn't feel that is a lie and that's the kind of shame that I want us to think about this morning we've looked at the legitimate shame a few weeks ago now we're going to look at the illegitimate shame that often comes from the mistreatment and abuse that uh, people do to us in our lives that causes us to have a view of ourselves um, which, you know, I, I hate, we even hate to say that word, a sense of disgust with ourselves. And yet we've been made by God in his image, and we absolutely should not feel that way. So those are lies. And it is into that shame that Jesus came to share in, to take from us on the cross. And so this morning I want to talk about shame by answering two simple questions for us. This is what they are. How do we experience Shame. First of all, where does where does shame come from? What are the events that happen that cause shame to be such a powerful force in our life? How do we experience shame? And then the second question is, how does Jesus heal our shame? How do we experience it, and how does Jesus heal it? Two simple questions. And I'll say, you know, this is a very big topic. Consider this sermon a conversation starter for us as a community. That there's so much. There are so many ways. Thousands of ways that people have experienced room, experience shame present in this room. I don't know what they all are. I don't know what the shame is in your life. God knows. You know. And um, hopefully this sermon can be a place to not give all the answers about shame, but to open a conversation, open a door, where to say that this could be a community where we could talk about the shame that we've experienced and that we uh, wrestle with. So two questions this morning. How do we experience shame, and how does Jesus heal it? So first, how do we experience shame? And I want to name five sources of shame that we see in this passage. Five experiences that we have that give us a sense of shame, okay? How do we experience it? First source is this. We experience shame through someone who is in a position of power in our lives, we experience shame through someone who's in a position of power in our life. And you, you know you feel that in verse 27, the opening of this passage. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now a battalion, that could be as many as hundreds of soldiers. This is a, this is a large, rowdy crowd of intimidating men that have gathered and surrounded Jesus and brought him into closed quarters, where there is no way out. And often the illegitimate shame that we experience in our lives comes from someone in our lives who is in a position of power like that. These are soldiers, there's a governor, there's an official place. And for us, shame comes from someone who is in that position of power, of course, it could be a parent. It could be an older sibling. You know, in school settings, it could be someone who's popular and has social power and can, you know, turn people against us. Um, and of course, there are power positions in the church that are profound sources of shame in people's lives. And you know, in a postmodern world, we, you know, our generation is very alert to the fact, the power that people, when someone's in a position of, of power how much shame they can cause in someone's life. And so actually our culture is very suspicious basically of anyone in a position of power. We say, you know, anyone's in a position of power, they're probably abusing it, they're probably mistreating people. That's the only reason someone would be in a position of power. And you might say, well, you know, that's how postmodern people think. How do we, we as Christians, should we think? And I think, frankly, that idea largely has its roots in the Bible. Jesus became a victim under an oppressive and abusive power. And he came into that position in order to expose uh, that, that the abuse that happens by people of power. And so we may be uncomfortable with that and say, oh, you know, well, everyone's going to feel like they're a victim. Well, I'll tell you what, the Bible honors and elevates the victim, the weak, the powerless, and the helpless. And so when you're in a position where you're being shamed by someone who's in a position of power of you, that is the experience often of powerlessness, helplessness, and you might say vulnerability. And I think that leads to a second way that we experience shame. It's not only through someone who's in a position of power, but second, we experience shame through nakedness. And you may be read over those few words quickly in verse 28, and they stripped him. Jesus was not only surrounded by a gang of rowdy men, he was stripped naked in front of them. Rowdy soldiers in an enclosed environment that he could not escape and was stripped naked. That happened to our Lord. And, you know, of course, nakedness and shame throughout the Bible go together. You know, one of the most beautiful Sentences in the whole scripture comes in Genesis chapter two, where it describes humanity before sin came into the world. And the beautiful description of humanity before sin is that we were naked and we were unashamed. We knew that every inch of my body had been created good by God, and He had said that it was good, and He delighted in it. And there was this confidence, and there was this freedom um, to be myself. And there was a certain authenticity to feel at home in my own skin. And so, on the one hand, because of the fall, we've lost that confidence. We don't want anyone to see our nakedness. But also, we live in an increasingly sexualized culture where our sexual lives, and especially the sexual lives of young people, are constantly assaulted. And I want to read this. This is from Dan Allender. Dan Allender's book, uh, Healing the Wounded Heart. This is, this is what Dan Allender says. He's a, he's a cr- Christian psychologist. He says, it is unquestionable that there is a rise in sexually violating harassment and intimate partner violence. The extent of sexual harassment in our schools between elementary school and high school is staggering. In 2001, the American Association of University Women Study on Harassment indicated that 89% of girls and 60 to 79% of boys were sexually harassed. The onset of the harassment was in sixth grade. In this group, 59% experienced harassment occasionally and 27% often. And the incidence of sexual harassment increased through high school. To grow up in a culture like that, um, a sexually aggressive culture, a sexually charged culture like that, is to have shame be a dominant experience of growing up in our culture. It's because of that. And the reason why this is allowed to happen is because also of a third uh, source of shame that we see in this text, not only from people who are in a position of power through nakedness, through sexual harassment, assault, but third also through humor, ridicule. You see in verse 28, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus comes saying, I'm the true king starting a kingdom of love and it is a joke to them. This is love himself who has come in flesh, to walk among us. This is the one who invented the moon. I mean, he thought of the moon. He thought of seahorses and, you know, grapefruit trees. He invented those things. He's this beautiful mind, this beautiful soul has come to us, and he's ridiculed and made fun of. I mean, it's how, how appalling. And the thing about humor, humor is, was given by God to be one of the most important instruments of grace in human life. Because what humor does is humor says that there are certain imperfections about me that um, when I can laugh at them, when I have a friend, a trusted person, and we can laugh together, and you're like, yeah, I know I'm like that, and we laugh together, and all of a sudden the imperfections of me, about me become something that I know that I can be a delight to someone even though I'm imperfect. And that's exactly what grace is all about. The, the reality that I can be imperfect and be a delight to God, humor is supposed to teach us that. And actually there's a great... Um, Seen in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories in *The Magician's Nephew*, there's a chapter called *The First Joke and Other Matters*, and this is in the in uh, in the stories when Narnia, the land of Narnia, has just been created by Aslan, the great king of Narnia, and there's all these talking animals around who are talking, talking. There's all this commotion. All of a sudden, it goes quiet for a second, and this jackdaw, which is like a, a crow makes this noise and realizes, oh, everyone was quiet. And I made this noise, all embarrassed. And everyone starts laughing because he made, you know, it's kind of like when you're at a party and it goes quiet and you say something really loud. And you're kind of embarrassed. And the jackdaw's embarrassed. Everyone thinks, you know, can we laugh at him? And then uh, and Aslan says, yes, you should laugh. Laughter is a good thing. And then this is what the jackdaw says. He says, Aslan, Aslan, have I made the first joke? Will everybody always be told how I made the first joke? No, little friend, said the lion. You have not made the first joke. You have been the first joke. (laughs) And then everyone laughed more than ever. But the jackdaw didn't mind and laughed just as loud. He could laugh at himself. And his imperfection was okay. It was accepted. It was embraced. And it was through humor. Humor has the power to relieve our shame, to wash away our shame, and to say that I'm a delight I make people smile, even in my imperfection. You know, actually, in that sense, it's very much like sex. You know, sex is that way that, that, you know, my wife could see my, you know, lumpy, awkward, naked body and find that erotically pleasurable. You know, it's just a miracle. And you say, wow, my imperfect body could be a source of pleasure. That's grace. And to find out that that's, that's what humor is supposed to be. And just like... When sex becomes pleasure taking instead of grace giving, or when humor becomes pleasure taking instead of grace giving, it becomes shaming and dehumanizing. And it's because shame and humor are both talking about our imperfections. One talks about them from a spirit of grace, and one talks about them to destroy, spirit of death. Humor can ruin a person. And you may not know this, this week in our community, poor girl at Linden Middle School was ridiculed and took her own life this week in our community because humor was used to destroy her. And that kind of humor that destroys fell on our Savior. It fell on Jesus. He walked into that. And it's because of the beauty of humor that we should be so horrified when it is used to shame and to destroy. And that's the destruction of shame. And that's why it's not surprising that there is a fourth aspect when, that we see that, faith, uh, that shame destroys. A fourth source of shame that we see in this passage is that we experience shame through physical violence. And, you know, in the passage right before this, Jesus had uh, been scourged, which if you don't know what scourging is, he was flogged with a leather whip. And a, it was a leather whip with, probably with metal pieces in the end and bones in the end that would rip the flesh out of his back. So he's already been deeply beaten. And then it says in this passage in verse 30, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So one commentator said, The jokes have now turned violent. And I really think that often um, the physical violence of abuse is made worse by the shame of, of physical violence. Like, you know, if you've ever been beat up, the worst part of being beat up is, is not the physical pain of it, it's the humiliation of being beat up. And, you know, I, I actually remember once when I was uh, probably about 10, I, I was going to a movie with a, a friend of mine and. We went to 7-Eleven. We were going to buy some candy to shove in our pockets to you know, sneak into the movie theater. And he, was, he wanted me to buy him some beef jerky. And I was like, no, you buy your own beef jerky. I'm not buying you beef jerky. And he got all upset at me. And you know, so I left him at 7-Eleven, and he, he chased me down. And right in front of the movie theater, there was a whole crowd of people coming out of the movie theater. And he grabbed me and threw me against the wall and, and said, don't you ever not buy me beef jerky again. And he punched me in the face. Right, right in front of this whole crowd of people, And, you know, it didn't hurt that bad. But I ran home two miles just in tears, so humiliated. Physical violence, it's not the pain, it's the shame of it. It's the humiliation of it that makes it so bad. Because a person's face, a person's face is beautiful, it's soft, it's delicate. You know, there's eyes and nose and mouths and ears they are loaded with nerves a face is reflecting to us God's image. And for, for a face, a physical face, to be marred is a profound dishonor to God himself. And there's deep shame in physical violence, and I think that's probably the worst part of it. And so how do we experience shame? How is shame present in our culture, in our, in our lives, as many of you have experienced? For someone who's in a position of power, is through nakedness and through you know, sexual harassment and abuse through humor and ridicule, through physical violence. But there's one last source of shame that I want to highlight in this passage that we also experience shame through secrecy. And you see that in verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on, and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. You see, they had this whole scene where they mock him as the king and then they end it. And then they just dress him back up in his regular clothes and send him out like it never happened. And, you know, the whole shaming happened in secret where no one was looking. For many of us, the events in our lives that are the deepest sources of shame happened in secret and they've stayed secret and we have kept them secret. You know, one author says, shame gives us a vague disgust with ourselves, in which, uh, which in turn feels like a hunk of lead in our hearts. And so, what is that vague feeling? To say that shame is just kind of a vague feeling that we, why is it a vague feeling? The reason it's a vague feeling is because we often haven't looked at it. Right? We haven't named it. It's just kind of a general sense because you, in order to know what it is, you would have to look at it and see what it is and bring it out. And here in the passages of the gospel, Jesus' abuse is recorded. It is read and reread throughout history. This passage has been read and read over and over again. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. And in some sense, the gospel does not just reveal Jesus' shaming. But this reveals the shaming that we've all experienced. Jesus is exposing the abuse and mistreatment that we have all experienced throughout the history of the world that has fallen on him, and he is now bringing into the light so that he can heal those who've been shamed. Now, you might say, okay, why do I say all this? Why this listing, this catalog of the ways that we experience shame? I say all this because many of us here This has been our whole life. I mean, for many of you, this is the day-to-day experience. You know the lead in your heart? You'd say, I feel it in my body. I feel it in my nerves. I feel it in my stomach, in my chest, in my throat. I see it in the mirror. This shame that seems to be always with me that feels like lead. And this passage says that Jesus, the one who chose you, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. The one who chose you has experienced all of your shame. He's been stripped naked by those who are in power. He has been laughed at and humiliated and beaten and spit on, and it was done in secret. And if this has been your life, ridicule and shame, and you think, what is the point of all this? What goodness is there in all this horrible, crushing misery? What is there in this blackness, this leadness? Jesus is there. That's what's in the shame, is Jesus is there. It is in the place of shame that Jesus meets us. Because it's in the shame that we experience both our imperfections and the imperfections of this world and the pain of this world. And so it's in the shame that we can experience Jesus' grace. And so that leads to the second question we want to answer. First question, how do we experience shame, this This passage is all there for us. Jesus experienced it. The second question, how does Jesus heal our shame? And, you know, as I was uh, preparing the sermon, I I knew that this had to be the second point, right? The first point is how do we experience shame? The second point had to be how does Jesus heal the shame? And so I came to this passage, and I'm asking that question. I know that has to be the answer. I said, what does Jesus do in this passage to heal our shame? And I tried to find Some verse where Jesus is the subject, where he is doing something for someone. And you read the whole passage, Jesus isn't the subject of anything in this whole passage. He's the object. He's the one who, in that sense, he is taking our shame. But ironically, the only sentences in this passage where Jesus is the subject and does something is on the mouth of those who are mocking him while he's on the cross. They say what he does. And of course they're ridiculing him but it turns out that in their words, I think are the words of hope for us. And so I want to highlight these three things that they say, just briefly. Okay. So how does Jesus heal our shame? First, he rescues us with love. And you see that in verse 42, with the with the uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders say in verse 42, he saved others. Jesus saved others. Jesus came to rescue and to save people who could not save themselves and could not pull themselves out of the darkness. I think that's one of the main things probably about shame is that I I can't run away from it. I'm not even sure I can deal with it or handle it myself. And to say that Jesus comes to rescue me from it. He is going to rescue me. He saves others. And you know, we... we, uh, said earlier that you know much of the shame that we've experienced in our life was when someone who was in a position of power did something to us that we did not ask for, and it left this permanent effect on our whole life because someone came into our life, and we say, how unfair. And yet the good news is that the gospel says that also a man of power comes into our life when we didn't ask for it. But he's good. He's kind, he's loving, he's trustworthy, he is not abusive. He speaks words of grace and truth to us. And in the same way the abuse, the mistreatment affected us in long term, his love transforms and affects us long term as well. That is the good news, that we are not going to scrap our way out of the pit. We are rescued by love. And that's what, we, that's what we need to be aware of as a community. What is this community of people right here? This is the place where Jesus is bringing people who have a vague sense of lead in their hearts and in their nerves and in their stomachs and their throats that they carry everywhere with them, that has come from their being mistreated in this brutal world. Jesus is bringing them here and he is rescuing them with kindness and with love. They're going to have a new kind of family, a new kind of experience. That is what Jesus is doing. Praise the Lord. Okay? Second, how does Jesus heal shame? He rescues us with love. Second, he is a good authority. Look at the second part of verse 42. They said, he is the king of Israel. You know, again, to think about that we said that shame comes from someone in a position of power, and if that's happened to you, where someone who's in a position of power in your life has mistreated you, you might have said, you know what, no one is ever going to be in a position of power in my life again. They're not going to be in that place. And um, of course I would say you should be careful about the kinds of people that are given a position of power in your life. I think that's good to think about a church that you go to that both loves the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures, but the truth is softened with the love and grace of Jesus. That's an important thing, that those are the kind of authorities we should put ourselves under. But we should also know that the healing of our shame will include an embrace of an authority of grace. The healing of your shame, that will involve embracing an authority of grace in your life. And the authority of grace is Jesus. He is the true king of the world. The next chapter is going to say that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the man of power. He is the one who makes good laws. He is the one that we can trust. and Because authority is a protection. And so part of the process of healing will be to find a loving church, finding a loving home group, loving elders and pastors and deacons and staff and leading women, and 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 through the church to say, Jesus is my authority, the kingdom of God is real and alive, and that means there is loving authority in the world, and I need to find it. There is loving authority in the world, and wherever it is, I need to find it, because I need it in my life, okay? But enable it. In order to do that, you need a third way that Jesus heals us of our shame. Is that he also teaches us to trust. You know, of course, that's one of the great effects of shame in our lives, is that when we've been mistreated, we're very distrustful of people. They say, it was in that place of powerlessness and helplessness and vulnerability that I was hurt. I'm not going to be in a place of powerlessness and vulnerability again. And we have to be aware that the hardening of distrust is a scary thing to happen to our souls. What's so amazing about what this text says about, here's Jesus hanging on the cross. He's been brutally beaten. And look at what it says in verse 43. He trusts in God. The man on the cross trusts in God. Is Jesus a fool? Do you think Jesus is a fool for trusting God while he's on the cross? He's in this brutal world, and he trusts that his father loves him and and is devoted to him and cares for him. He trusts in God. Is Jesus a fool? Because many of us, when we've been mistreated, we say, I'm not going to be a fool. I'm not going to be a fool. I'm not going to trust and become a fool again. And we have to answer the question, was he right to trust God while he was dying on the cross? And I think we would all say he was. God raised him. God vindicated him. God saved him. God was with him. God gave him the the power to remain faithful. And in this violent and broken world, in Jesus, you can trust God. And you can be right to trust God. You can trust God and not be a fool. You are not a fool for trusting God. But you will only know that when you let yourself be rescued by his love and to start to put yourself under his authority of grace. And when you do that, you will find that he is not ashamed to call you his brother. Let's pray together.